Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. We started this project as a labor of love, with the idea of making a community-based, collaborative podcast about war films, for fans, by fans. War movies are often heavy, sometimes they're funny. We love these films because they help us explore the history of ourselves, of our world, and of the human condition under the most trying circumstances. The inspiration for Danger Close came from a fantastic podcast we all love that sadly is no more. When it ended, despite the seemingly niche appeal of a war film podcast, a passionate and eclectic fan community of the former show was determined to do something to fill that void. Just weeks ago, the people who have made this podcast were strangers, united only by our common enthusiasm for that show and the content it produced. In reaching out to our community of fellow fans who love that show, the response for this project has been overwhelmingly positive and encouraging. Artists, historical researchers, strategic planners, cinephiles, all sorts of people have stepped up to make this project a reality, and all in a very short amount of time. We're going to continue with that spirit of community involvement moving forward. On top of having conversations about war movies and reviewing them, we also plan to include interviews with experts and veterans to bring you as many informed and first-hand perspectives as we can. And who knows what else we'll come up with as we progress. In combat, danger close is the term used when calling for fire support if you or other friendly forces are in close proximity to the target. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. We are Dan, Katie, and Liam, and this is Danger, danger Close. Call it in. It's danger close. This is our podcast. There are many like it, but this one is ours. Sorry, I literally couldn't resist. I tried, I failed, I just couldn't hack it. 1978 saw American cinema take its first hard look at the experiences of servicemen in Vietnam with The Deer Hunter. It's practically required viewing in my hometown of Pittsburgh, but that's likely because it lovingly recreated the steel mill life of southwestern Pennsylvania with greater care and attention to detail than it took with the experiences of real POWs. Regardless of its accuracy, or lack thereof, it waltzed away with the Oscar for Best Picture and opened the floodgates for a generation of war films that would paint the quagmire in varying shades of grim, with brushstrokes of varying broadness. In 1979, Francis Ford Coppola brought the first real cinematic depiction of the Vietnam War to the masses with Apocalypse Now, an ambitious adaptation of a book that has absolutely nothing to do with Vietnam except its backdrop of colonialist skullduggery. What might be history's most acid-fueled blend of art and war has gone on to the stuff of legend, in part because of its influence on future war films, but also because of the balls-out insanity of its production process. Then, in 1986, Oliver Stone brought what many believe to be the quintessential Vietnam movie to the big screen. Platoon gave us an appreciation for grunt life like no other film before or since, vividly crafting each and every character with all of the truth and personality that could be crammed into approximately five minutes of screen time each. Like The Deer Hunter, Platoon also captured the top honor at the Academy Awards, and made us take Oliver Stone seriously as a filmmaker for at least two decades longer than we should have. 
In between all of those cinematic giants, we have the blood and guts Rambo and missing in action flicks that pumped a nation still reeling from an unfathomable loss, so full of adrenaline that we actually regressed into an impossible blend of adolescence and machismo. And all of this happened prior to the release of today's film, which leads us hosts to wrestle with the question of, why was this made? It isn't like Kubrick to just jump on any passing bandwagon, though he isn't a stranger to throwing his gauntlet down in already crowded fields. This is a film with a first half so darkly comical that it's burned into the brains of even people who've never seen the film, and a second half that goes misremembered by a good portion of people who have. After today's film, new archetypes exploded into the popular culture, and the idea of regular Joes going off to fight for their country was challenged, with the idea that to survive a war, you have to become something other than human. With a perfectionism that borders on the abusive, our boy Stanley is looked at in recent years mostly as one among any number of asshole geniuses whose importance we need to re-examine. But he is also unquestionably a master of his craft and an artist with something to say. So what was he saying with this unflinching depiction of the most hotly debated conflict in American history? And whatever his message was, was it received as he intended? Join us on our first volley as we discuss Stanley Kubrick's 1987 penultimate offering, Full Metal Jacket. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. Tonight I am here with my brand new hosts and we are just starting this project right off the ground and we're super excited about it and we're really excited to share it with you guys. So um, yeah, my name is Dan. Uh, I was uh, a Marine for five years back uh, 03 to 08. I worked in aviation. I was an air traffic controller. I'm still an air traffic controller. I've always loved film, and um, I got involved a few years ago in a couple of podcasts. One of them uh, deals with the Blade Runner universe, the films and comics and anime, etc., and gets into philosophy, and I have a couple of great partners that I work on that podcast with. We then started doing a Patreon show that deals with uh, other films where we just pick films and talk about them, and so I've been doing this for a couple of years, and it's been really rewarding and really exciting and I've learned a lot about cinema you know I never went to film school and so it's just been a really uh, a really fun journey learning about film and talking to other film enthusiasts so again I went through a process of kind of talking to people that volunteered for this project and very quickly I found these two hosts that I felt had the right combination of qualities, personality, charisma, and also the right background and motivation to do this. This is an all-volunteer project, and I needed people who know how much podcasting is hard work. Um, it's when you're if you're not being paid professionally for it, you know you have families and a day job and everything. It's a lot of time and effort into recording and editing and all that stuff. And it takes a lot to really make it sound good and it takes a while to upgrade your equipment. So um, I really appreciate that I had so many people step up. And tonight, for the first time, I want to introduce you to Katie and Liam who have joined me to host this show. So Katie, why don't you take the ball and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hello, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, I am a film critic 
sadly, not professionally. <laughs> and I'm on hiatus for about a year because of there's no movies happening. Boo. At least in theaters. Um, I started writing for uh, Birth Movies Death uh, in 2017. And I've written for a couple of other sites since then. You can find me on Twitter at KT underscore Schaefer if you ever want to see what I've been doing. Um, and I grew up watching movies of all kinds, but I spent a lot of time with my dad watching the History Channel, talking about war, learning about the different different aspects of all of that. And when I saw the option to hop onto this project, I couldn't say no, because talking to folks about film is one of my favorite things to do, and war movies have so much potential for great discussion. So I... I'm an accountant in my day job, so very boring, but I'm just excited to be here and to talk with these two folks about films and war movies and everything in between. Definitely. Liam? Hi. Where to begin? Uh, so I'm a writer. Uh, I'm an actor. I'm a stage director. Uh, I, I went to school for theater uh, and primarily have a theater background, uh, but... Uh, I have had a lifelong obsession with film, uh, and it's one of those things that, uh, when I start talking about movies, I really have a tendency to not be able to shut up. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty brash and opinionated and pretentious in my, in my discussions. So, uh, we'll see how long it takes for Dan and Katie to replace me, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the, uh, really excited to be a part of this. Uh, I have, I'm, I'm new to podcasting, so I have a, another podcast where, uh, two friends of mine and I get drunk and fight about horror movies called Fright Pub. Um, so if you, if you, uh, enjoy my antics while I'm sober, head on over there and see a real shit show. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a good time. But uh, yeah, like like these two, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be a part of this. And we'll we'll put show notes um, on each episode as well. We're gonna thank our contributors. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But we have a lot of people helping here, doing historical research, research on the film. So we're reading some of them their work. So this is by no means a three person only project. We just happen to be the voice for it. But um, we actually have a professional strategic planner named Nathan, who's part of the core team, who's really helping us stay organized and work with um, all the different software and communication apps and emailing and all of that. Um, that's really his skill set. And we got this project going with basically a two week ish deadline to get our first episode launched. So I've hired an artist to do our art. Etc. So things were moving really quickly, and this is all I was doing for like a week straight. So it's a lot of moving parts, and we need a lot of help, and we really found that. So again, we have people from master's degree in history and specific areas of, you know, there's a Russian cinema podcaster. And again, we'll put all that information in the show notes, and we'll credit the people who help with each specific episode as we go along, as well as putting um, our social media information and our other podcasts if you're interested um in going to listen to those that'll all be in the show notes so yeah so um for this project really i think we wanted to talk about war film but also uh differently than what some other shows have done we want to include documentaries 
and we really wanted to incorporate being able to do interviews with veterans. So again, some of this we've nailed, some of this is still malleable and we'll kind of work it out organically as it goes along, but we'll have guest hosts on and we'll have a lot of participation from the public and from the listeners. And uh, it's always been something I wanted to do was to interview veterans and get their stories on tape. So this is a great opportunity to do that. And as much as we can, we will blend that into talking about these films. So whenever we can get a veteran who has experience in that particular uh, setting or war or time period, um, we're going to try and get that for you guys. And um, yeah, and then, you know, later on, if we start a Patreon, we might do you know war in science fiction and stuff like that that won't be part of the main feed but again we have a lot of ideas we haven't worked all of them out yet because we wanted to get this going but you're kind of going to be along for the ride with us so we'll figure out where it goes as it goes along so i think with that uh get all the housekeeping out of the way we can start on our very first episode and our very first film which is stanley kubrick's 1987 classic Full Metal Jacket. So, man, there's a lot to talk about. Katie, why don't you start us off? So much to talk about. So, Full Metal Jacket was Kubrick's second to last film. And he the last one after this was Eyes Wide Shut, which didn't happen for another 12 years in 99. And this one was not necessarily the best critical reception of his pieces. There was quite a bit of judgment for how let's see ebert called it um strangely shapeless is how he put it so (laughs) gave it a two and a half out of five i think um but then like other reviewers really loved it and really got what kubrick was trying to do and i think that is really the question with all kubrick films is what was he trying to say in this and i think that's what we're gonna get to tonight I think it's it's a, a fun video if you can go back and unearth it. Um, watching uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert fight over uh, over their responses to Full Metal Jacket. It was a thumbs up from Siskel and a thumbs down from Ebert, and they could not have had different opinions about this if like somebody paid them to. Uh, it was, well, somebody it was, did. Well, <laughs> they weren't paid to have separate opinions. That's they true. They, but they were paid to opinions. have them. <laughs> they were paid to have them. Lucky bastards. As soon as I get somebody to pay me to tell people what I think about a thing, uh, I will just immediately die happy. But until then, I'll just keep giving it away. <laughs> so we obviously just watched this recently so we could do the research and take notes and, and read everyone else's input. But um, do you guys remember your first experience with this? So this is a question I get asked all the time and I suck at it, especially for older films because I often do not remember my first experience. But what about you guys? I was going to say is it like we've all seen this mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, not always a given. Um, man, I remember I've I've watched this movie one other time. Oh, it's only your second and viewing. Interesting. Swear to God, it's my okay. second viewing. Uh, I've I've not watched this since the first time I watched it, uh, and it and it couldn't have been a more different experience for me the second time around. Uh, the the first time. I watched it. I was in high school. 
And it was in that period of time when I had just recently sort of had the floodgates of R-rated movies open to me. Um, and so I was probably like 16, maybe 17. And the I, I'd seen Platoon and loved it. And this was always another one of the big Vietnam movies that was mentioned, uh, usually in the same breath as like Platoon and Apocalypse Now. Um, so I, I saw this movie and I don't think I realized at the time how much it disturbed me. Um, I just thought I didn't like it. <laughs> um, I thought the, I, th- I was like, and I had a very similar response to Apocalypse Now, which I I hadn't watched. I haven't watched since the first time I watched it either. Um, but it was like very much a tale of two movies where I was like really engaged in the first half and then not at all taken with the second half. Um, and going back and watching it, I just watched it the other night and it was remarkable to me how much of the second half I did not remember. And I, that is surprising to me because when it comes to movies, I, I kind of have a a mind like a steel trap. Like I, movies are something that stick with me and I remember them and I remember details and I remember things that I liked and things that I didn't like and I have a tendency to go on and talk about it afterwards. Um, this one, after the halfway point, like, it is so sparse, the things that I actually remembered watching, to the point where I almost feel like I closed my eyes for the rest of it. I didn't. I know I watched it. But, like, a little vignette here and a little tiny vignette there, uh, like, I, I remember... Uh, the me love you long time, uh, unfortunate little bit of dialogue, but like, well, and it's been, it, it's been used. I mean, it's been sampled and used in jokes and, you know, it has. Oh yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like me love you long time is an unfortunate part of our, our collective consciousness that like everybody knows, even if you don't know what it's referencing, you know, you, you know, sort of it, it you might not know the movie it's referencing, but it doesn't take a lot of uh, imagination to uh, to realize where that joke is coming from, and uh, and I remember uh, the the scene where they're all looking at each other and they're gonna go get the sniper when Animal Mother's like, "Let's go get some payback," or or whatever it is he says. Uh, I remember that shot of Animal Mother looking at Joker and him saying something. I didn't even remember what he said, but I remember him saying something. And I remember how the light was like, I remember it was lit with fire and stuff like that. Um, But here's how much I didn't remember. I didn't remember that it was, I didn't remember that it was a sniper. Like it's famous for being like the sniper scene. And I had no recollection of there being a sniper involved. I and and the only thing I can think is that like my brain shut off 
at the halfway point. Just didn't point. want to absorb that. It did. It, it was incapable of absorbing literally anything else because I was so thrown. I had to have been like that's the only ex- explanation that I can come up with is that I was so just completely blown out of the saddle by that middle section. See, I saw this movie in my early 20s. I was living by myself for the first time, meaning I had full control of the remote. And Netflix on DVD was real popular then to age myself. And I got all the movies. And I would go on these binges. And I went on a Kubrick binge. And I watched this then. And so I watched it by myself. And honestly, Liam, it's the same for me. I very vividly remember the first half of that movie. But then when it gets into the second half, like I I didn't recall anything. And I, in fact, I watched this last night. And then I rewatched the ending again right before we did this to refresh it in my head because it's, it's so brutal that it just didn't it feels like it didn't stick around with me because my brain is so caught up in that first section of the film where things are really ramping up and we're getting to know these characters. So what you guys, but first of all, I can relate to what both you guys said, because I remember distinctly the first half of the film, at least the first few times, you know, maybe I, um, up until the last time I saw it before this time around, I didn't really remember the second half, but one thing that comes up is, do you think this is a two or three act film? Because I think I've heard it brought up often as a rare example of a two act story. And that makes sense if you look at it simply because the movie literally could have an intermission. I mean, it's such a stark contrast between Marine Corps boot camp and then bam, you're in Vietnam. That doesn't mean that there aren't transitions. And that doesn't mean that the middle of the film isn't different from the first and third act. If you look at it as a three act film, but I'm just curious from a cinema perspective, whether, um, what, what do you think about that? This is definitely, a that's how I look at it. In the, but... in the, when we are looking at how they determine acts, which is admittedly a little loosey goosey, this is definitely a two act film. I mean, you could even classify this as two different. And I saw this in one review, the Hollywood Reports uh, original 1987 review of this classified it as two, mo- two mini movies crammed together. Interesting. And I, I don't agree with that, but I think it's a two act right. film. Yeah, certainly there's a big distinction. Yeah, I would have agreed with that in uh, in a heartbeat until I watched it mm-hmm. a second time. Like it, it really does. It's it's such a jarring transition, and there's so much about the the first half that's different from the second half. That I remember thinking that when I first watched it, that I didn't, I couldn't even tell. And it's interesting that you, Katie, that you said the, um, you know, we we'd been spending this time getting to know, getting to know these characters. I felt when I watched it the first time that the only characters that got any kind of development, they they killed off halfway through. With Pyle, you mean? Yeah, with Pyle and the sergeant, and I I really couldn't tell. The only way I could tell who was supposed to be the main character was that Joker is still the guy in the second half of the movie. But I never really felt like I got anything from Joker, that I got uh, any kind of connection to him um, the first time 
now I think I have a better eye and a better uh, understanding of the storytelling at play than I, well, at least I hope I have a better eye now than I did when I was 16. Um, but that it, it's it really felt like more of a whole movie than two short mini movies gram- right. crammed together uh, this time than it did the first and time. There is something a little more simple to the structure of the this first act, the boot camp act. Not that they aren't telling a story or that the characters don't have arcs there, obviously, especially um, Leonard's character certainly has an arc. But I think someone who is not looking at it from a, you know, more narrative perspective can very easily watch the first half simply as like almost like a Marine Corps boot camp documentary, just really well done and very well scripted and with great ad libbing and realism and all that. But like when I was young and I first watched this, I didn't really care about the second half of the film. I was like, man, this movie's like, I just love every minute of the dialogue in the first half. And this is even before I went into, had that experience for myself, literally. Um, And then as I got more into understanding art and writing and cinema, that's when I really started to appreciate the second half more. And you see Joker's arc all the way through um, to the end and, and all the characters that die off, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think different people could definitely view this movie from, from totally different perspectives and also like, or dislike the first and second half. I think I hear this a lot about this movie, right? Uh, Dan, one thing I, I do want to ask you and I apologize. This is going to be a recurring theme. I feel, uh, through, throughout this, this project is I am uh, soft and squishy in every sense of the word. So I am not a Marine. And watching this, especially this time, uh, I, I am curious how anybody watches this movie and decides they want to go have that experience for themselves <laughs> after it. Like, the, yeah, did uh, you think it was an exaggeration and then you got there and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, like I could see people who went through it going to see it and loving it because it's like, oh, yeah, no, they nailed it. That's exactly what my drill instructor was like. But like I can't see anybody. This is like gym class for me, but like gym class took cocaine and it's like this cocaine monkey that's like punching <laughs> you in the head. That's what that's what boot camp looked like to me is just like do a pull up fatty and i'm just like no i can't do it uh that's i i was having flashbacks to my own gym class experience and starting to get into a cold sweat like i cannot imagine being like that's the life i want to live boy they make that well i will say this movie did not recruit me into the marine corps um so so i don't remember exactly how i felt about the boot camp scene it certainly looked hard and it looked like it sucked but mostly i was focused on just how funny it was and the dialogue and i just enjoyed watching it i don't remember watching it when i was younger thinking man i really want to be there um for me my attraction to the marine corps came from doing rotc in college i went to uc davis for a year until i realized that i was too undisciplined as a 19 year old to make it through college at the time and we we cross trained we did the the navy rotc unit that trained both navy and marine corps uh, was at berkeley 
also really interesting to run around in like PT uniforms in Berkeley, like to be, to get yelled at and called a baby killer when you're like a 19 year old and you haven't done anything. It's just like kind of a strange experience, a very <laughs> surreal experience. Christ. You're 19. This is not the but 70s. That, that is where I met my first Marines. So the XO of the unit was an artillery officer. There was a gunnery sergeant, same rank as Gunny Hartman in the film. Which, if you haven't, I'm not going to break down all of the rank structure, but you know, there are enlisted uh, people and then there are officers. And so uh, a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, it's a title that's unique to the Marine Corps, but it's an E7. So it's a seventh level. It goes sergeant, staff sergeant, gunnery sergeant. Um, gunny is used colloquially, um, especially when you know someone, but you might call someone a gunny if you're on, you know, relatively neutral terms with them. Gunnery sergeant's a little more official. Uh, they're never a gunny sergeant. That's not a thing. Um, but yeah, so, and so, yeah, let's get into it a little bit. So Arlie Ermey, of course, is super, super famous for this role. And he had spent, um, I think 11 years in the Marine Corps at this point, gotten out as a staff sergeant and he actually wanted to get into acting and wanted to get into Hollywood. And so, um, he started basically trying to get roles as a military advisor and he knew that if he could get on set and show his expertise eventually he would have the opportunity to actually act and he was in i think he was in apocalypse now he played a helicopter pilot in that and then of course this was his really his breakout role and he started as a technical advisor on this so he had been a drill instructor in the marine corps he had done it um you know, it says that he did it in Vietnam as well. So I'm not sure if they had some kind of training camp in Vietnam. Because normally in the Marine Corps, boot camp is ba- – there's only two Marine Corps recruit depots in the U.S. And we kind of – so there's the Hollywood Marines, meaning that west of the Mississippi, everyone there goes to MCRD San Diego, which is literally butts up to the San Diego airport. And then a little bit of the field training is then at Camp Pendleton. And then east of the Mississippi, you go to Paris Island, South Carolina, otherwise known as the island, which you hear it referred to in the film. Uh, Pretty stark difference. The training, of course, is very similar. You go through the same evolutions. Now, I noticed in the film, they said it was eight weeks. um, And I think that may have been shortened because of the draft and because of Vietnam. And that happened during World War II as well, when you, you know, they, they would adjust training periods to get fresh troops where they needed to go. But in general, Marine Corps boot camp is 13 weeks long. So it is the longest boot camp of all the services. Um, And like a lot of other boot camps, um, you start with everyone, meaning that when you go to boot camp, you are there with people from the infantry, artillery, more technical jobs, aviation. Everyone goes to the same basic training. Then when you leave there, you do some combat training and that's where they start to split you off. So basically it's Pogues, which you hear referred to in this film, P-O-G or Pogue is a person other than a grunt, mostly used by grunts or infantrymen um, to kind of disparage everyone else and make fun of them for not being as tough and not being like, you know, they wouldn't say they're not real Marines, but they're like, you know, the, the Marine Corps is a very infantry centric organization. It's about getting infantry marines where they need to go using the navy um, and then having air support and having all the support structures to get them in fast you know tip of the spear type of thing um and so in combat training you split up the infantry marines go to a 
uh, much longer school of infantry. That's their main A school. Everybody else like me, I was in aviation, goes to a three-week course. You learn to throw grenades, you know, you dig some trenches and, and do infantry stuff. But it's just a basic course to teach you so that if you're ever in combat, you have something to reference back to, right? And then you go to your technical training. So I went to Pensacola where the Blue Angels are. That's where a lot of uh, most naval and marine Corps aviation starts. I did a four-month school there, and then you get sent to the fleet to actually train on the job and do your job, which, again, was air traffic control for me. So, meaning that in boot camp is the place where you really get to experience uh, everyone from all over the country, you know, different test scores, different different abilities, different skill sets, and you all have to work together, and you're all freaking terrified because to go back to your question about whether the drill instructor and whether Ermi exaggerates this role kind of there's like a, a touch of Hollywood in this but really the comedy is on point obviously he's like the funniest version um, in that really sadistic way that a drill instructor could ever be but I mean I have tons of stories from boot camp of just I remember someone just getting laid into and Marine Corps boot camp is set up with a senior drill instructor like Gunny Hartman in this case. And there's usually three other drill instructors. The junior drill instructor, which is right below. And this is in order of experience, how many years they've done evolutions and gone through boot camp. And then there's sort of a middle guy. And then the bulldog. The bulldog is like the newest drill instructor. And so, first of all, drill instructors in their training, they go back through boot camp. They're the only Marines that have to go through boot camp twice, which really sucks. And they do it, so that they can understand the training perspective of it, but they still have to do it again, you know? And so they actually teach them how to be a drill instructor. And there's all these specifics, how to yell, how to not lose your voice, you know, how many minutes can you PT someone for? It's all regulated. And when you first go to boot camp, you're usually with a receiving platoon that's not going to be your final platoon. So you're doing bullshit like getting your uniforms and signing paperwork and getting your shots and all that stuff. You're still getting yelled at. You're still like, you know, you get the haircut, all that, but you're not, you haven't been dropped into your platoon yet with your drill instructors that are going to be your drill instructors for the next 11 or 12 weeks. So there's a day called Black Friday where on that Friday, the TVs go on sale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get those really In this good context, prices. I've always thought of Black Friday as this horrible thing. I never even made the shopping connection until you mentioned it, even to this day. As someone who's worked retail, Black Friday is right. a horrible thing. So it is. On Black Friday is when basically you're getting handed off from receiving to your actual drill instructors that are going to train you. And I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, they get you in these these squad bays and there's a quarter deck at the front of the squad bay. It's just a big square open area where they can PT you. And the drill instructor's office is right there, just like you see in the film. And they sit you down and usually like the company commander comes out. He'll be like a captain and he comes out and he's like, all right, hotel company, you know, You've done this so far, but now you have to get, you know, into your real training. You know, they give you some kind of motivational speech and, and they're still, even though it's an officer, he's still a hard ass because they're, they make Marines and they're good at it. And that's what they do. Then they introduce the drill instructors that are going to be your drill instructors for the next 12 weeks. And they come out and they come out and they're, you know, Marines are famous for popping and snapping. So when they're doing, um, 
movements and left right faces and stuff it is super crisp and super clean and they're doing really specific movements a lot more than in any other service and these guys come out and like i don't know if they're doing cocaine in the other room and punching each other in the face but like they come out like veins are bulging and they just look angry and they come out and they're (laughs) You know, they're they're marching essentially. So they come out one at a time and he introduces them by name, you know, Gunner Sergeant Hartman and whoever else. And then they come out at attention and they stand in front of you. And then there's some kind I forget what he says, but basically there's some kind of unleashing where he gives the drill instructors command of this platoon. And then all hell breaks loose. These guys start running around and screaming. And again, the bulldog, like that's all he does. That's all he's good at is just getting your face. There's spit flying everywhere. Boots and like gear and bags and stuff are just flying all over the place. And anytime the drone instructors in this uh, type of environment have a chance to add to the chaos, they're going to do it. Because again, the whole thing is to break you down and sort of simulate war so they're like knocking racks like but big metal bunk beds they're knocking racks onto the floor just throwing shit everywhere recruits are running around like running into each other you have no idea people are yelling you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing are you supposed to be going somewhere so they're going to take you to yeah i think they take you from there to your actual squad bay that's going to be yours and so but it's all done in a way that's like terrifying and super chaotic and you're just supposed to be confused. And you know, you're, it's like you have two left boots. You're trying to find the other one and you're just running around. And it's just like complete chaos. That's how it's designed. And then, and they don't show that to you in this film, right? You're sort of seeing the platoon after it's been dropped and the senior drill instructor is in charge. And then as you go on, you know, drill instructors have roles. So the senior drill instructor is like the dad of the platoon. He's hard, But usually when you're getting your ass handed to you, it's one of the other drill instructors in the platoon. And again, to tell a quick story, because I could talk about this all night, but I don't want to. um, I remember being uh, online, meaning you're at attention in front of your rack, as you see often in the film. And the drill instructors are laying into someone like on the far side of the barracks, right? Like 20 yards plus away. And I forget what they said, but they were laying into this kid and said something really funny. And I remember just like, like letting out a snicker. And I swear in a superhuman, supernatural way that I still don't understand how it happened in less than half a second. One of the drill instructors had not run. They never run. They just walk fast in a way that just feels superhuman. It doesn't matter. Like. Uh, if they're five foot six, like they move at a speed that is just unreasonable <laughs> and unnatural. And a drone instructor to come all the way across the squad bay had knocked me over my foot locker and was like in my face while I was on the ground, you know, like, what the fuck is so funny for later? You know, blah, 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 screaming at me. And I had no idea what had just <laughs> happened. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to watch myself because you think they don't see stuff and you think they don't hear you, but they do. So oh, no. all that to say that this feeling of being terrified that you see in the actor's face. First of all, they just did it. You know what I mean? Like they were just meeting him for the first time and he just went into drill instructor mode and he did get to ad lib a lot of his lines. He wrote like 150 pages of insults and he was just pulling those out of his pocket. And you know, Kubrick would approve them or change things here and there for pacing, Mm -hmm. but that's all real. And they do that. And so, yeah, it's one of these early examples of a technical advisor 
just doing the real thing. After this, uh, Dale Dye got really famous for this, right? He was a Marine officer and he ended up starting a company where he famously would train the actors in a simulated boot camp to sort of get the camaraderie going and get the physical training going. So Band of Brothers, he did the technical advising there. Saving Private Ryan, he did the technical advising there. He's a, a white haired guy, usually has a mustache, a pretty good looking guy. He's tall, uh, commanding presence usually. Um, and so, but at this point, I think this was pretty new to have like an actual Marine doing this stuff. And so of course the accuracy is, is incredible and great. Well, and what's interesting is, uh, just kind of on that, the, and, and this is like one of those, uh, great slash horrible Kubrick stories is the, the he wasn't the first one right. in that role. Uh, is and I and I I'm sorry I have to look up his name because I don't remember it. it it's okay. Keep talking. I'll head. find it for you. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's the guy who played the door gunner, Tim Colcheri. Tim Colcheri. Yeah, he was originally cast in the role, uh, and Arlie Ermey just kind of mm-hmm. took it from him, and he did it on per- like he. He was the technical advisor. He wanted to play the part. So he actually, and Kubrick wouldn't let him audition for it. He wouldn't let him read for it. Uh, So what he did is as these, as they were uh, working with the extras, like he put on his uniform and he like would work with these extras and he'd do it over and over again. And then they'd send tape of the extras for the casting process. But in the process, he was also himself auditioning. Cause he knew that Kubrick had to watch all of these extras videos. He's and so he just used man. each one he used as his own audition tape. Tim Colcheri, other guy, Colcheri, uh, Colcheri. uh he was, kind of strung along mercilessly by Kubrick and like it really kind of just destroyed his confidence in his life and like they kept giving him rewrites to memorize and work on and then he'd try to work on them but he was getting super stressed out and couldn't remember them and like the it it was a very uncomfortable sort of uh sort of transition where he finally like wrote him a like Kubrick told him in a letter that he wasn't getting the part. Oh but my! If, but if he wanted the if he wanted the role of the door gunner, he he mm-hmm. could have that. And so like he went home, and then like they flew him back to do the role of the door gunner. Uh, like months later, because it's a Kubrick shoot, and so everybody knows that like you sign on for like eighteen weeks for the shoot, but you're gonna keep working for like two more years. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So they, I think it was like 17 months later, they bring him back oh for the door. Yeah, scene. I was I was oh reading God. that uh, Matthew Modine got like engaged, married, his wife got pregnant and he had a baby all through the filming of this film. <laughs> Did you hear about him having a baby? Uh, yes. About asking. Yeah, go ahead. Tell the story. The uh, Kubrick didn't want to let him go. For the birth of his child. It was, it was like, I think it was a scheduled mm-hmm. C-section and, uh, Matthew Modine's like, Hey, I have to like baby. And he's just like, finally he let him go, but he told him to come right back when it was done. God, that's Kubrick though. <laughs> Kubrick is a problematic 
dude, to say the oh. least. Great director, but He's oh my, like one of not the a best nice pieces of shit you'll ever you'll ever have the. Well, I think it, it depends about. on what you mean by nice person. Like writers and people that have worked with him always say that he was the nicest guy, but he's also like the most demanding director on earth. And everyone that has filmed with him usually says it was a nightmare. But D'Onofrio mm-hmm. loves him. I, I think loves him dearly and call like never called him Kubrick, always calls him Stanley. He's like, oh, I owe, like he's like, I owe right. everything to Stanley. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio done like two movies before this. It was his big that break. Were like, yeah. yeah, like trauma sex, uh, sex comedy. For oh God, whatever. that's right. Like, that's right. Uh, but he was roommates with Modine. And then like they ran into each other later. He was working as a bouncer at a, at a club. And Matthew Modine comes by and they just started talking. And he was like, hey, there, I'm doing... You know, I'm doing the new Kubrick movie, and so like he got him an audition, and then the rest was. The rest what a was role! History. I mean, he gained like sixty or seventy pounds for that role, and eighty. 80. Really, I, oh it's, my god! It's, it's the well because he started out. They were like, "Man, you're you're too skinny. Mm-hmm. You we need bigger." So he's like, "Go put on thirty pounds." He put on thirty pounds, and they were like, "Well, now you just look like you can kick everybody's ass." So we need you to put another fifty pounds <laughs> on top. I think he. He might still have the record for the most, like the official record for most weight gained. Uh, yeah, uh, I think role. he does. Yeah, he does. And it's right. his first movie. And like, it's funny. I saw him recently uh, on a, on my other podcast. We reviewed Strange Days, which he's in. He plays a cop in that. And this is, uh, I want to say, 93 or 94. So you're... Yeah, so when we thought the world was going to end right. in Right, yeah, exactly. So it's like seven, eight years later. And he lost so much weight and his hair had grown out that he looks, he looks like eight years younger, eight years later than he did in this role. It's really interesting, but yeah, I mean, his performance is extremely powerful. Um, and one of the most compelling characters and, and it, that's a, it's a thing that happens too. And unfortunately you do hear these incidents. I mean, I had like kind of a chubby guy that got dropped into my platoon that I, tried to take under my wing. I was like a squad leader and then the guide. And I was like, all right, let me help this scout. But it's like, he was just completely out of his element. He somehow. How did they get, that was something I wanted to ask you. Like, is there not like an application or an interview or a test or something? There's many, I many mean, tests. There are, the but interviews. the basic physical requirements to get in are not that hard. Is and you got to consider that during a draft, like they're really looking for people. Yeah, they don't care. That was another question. Any more, like I know this was in the 60s, but any more, how many like bespectacled nerds are there in Marine boot camp? Like everybody is running around with like these horn rim glasses. Well, so on. those are Well, those are military issue glasses. And I'm just like, well, yeah, but jokers were wires, but like everybody else has like these thick ass right. 60s rims, and I'm just like, they don't like I I know you're not flying a plane. You're just shooting people. So there's an answer to both of those points. First of all, it's not realistic that Joker had different and thinner wire rim glasses because in boot camp, you don't have a choice. So everyone who has to wear glasses is going to wear what we call BCGs or birth control glasses. That's what they're called. And that's the nickname for them. Um, And there are these... They're these horrendous, ridiculous looking, (laughs) wide rimmed, dorky looking... (laughs) 
good luck getting Glasses. laid in these. And because boot camp's so intense, you do less physical activity, they often come with like a, a head strap behind them, you know? So yeah, it's just like the least attractive pair of glasses you're ever going to have. And most Marines, the minute they graduate boot camp, the first thing they do is go buy a much more decent looking set of military approved or whatever style glasses. But yeah, and you know, you make little concessions um, and change little things. I think the other thing you read about uh, Ermi, for example, is that in real life, nicest guy ever, like family man, always helping everybody out, just really, really nice guy. And I think even as a drill instructor, he toned it up and exaggerated a little bit. I think uh, in terms of, for example, hitting people in the face and in the stomach and stuff, he was saying that even back then, you could get away with it if you like hit it, but that was not an approved policy. You couldn't just hit people. And, and I saw that too. You know, there, there was times where like I got legs swept onto the floor by a drill instructor in a very showy fashion, but it's like, he held me on the way down to make sure my head didn't hit the floor. So it's like, there's little subtleties. Like there's a lot of theater in it, which we would appreciate. Oh, that so makes it's, sense. A lot of, that is it sense. asserting this authority and letting you know that like they're in charge and they're supernatural. And, you know, there's also little details they don't show like at the beginning, you do everything by the numbers, including going to the bathroom, uh, brushing your teeth, like everything. And by the numbers means that literally the first few times we brushed our teeth, there was a drone instructor screaming behind us and they're doing everything on a countdown. So I can't do it super fast, but it's kind of like the micro machines, man. And they'll start counting. They'll be like, okay, you're brushing the top left side of your face. Or ten, ten, nine, 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 nine. Now you're done. And they just count down from 10 to zero in like two seconds. But they're sold. Oh God. But they're doing it in this like minute way that I remember the only thing I felt unprepared for about boot camp was how many tiny aspects of your life they controlled, especially at the beginning. Things get more lenient as you go through, but at the beginning, unless you're asleep in your rack, you are just not getting a second of a break. And part of that is to get rid of the people who just cannot, who are going to punch a drill instructor in the face and they can't handle the this authoritative uh, person telling them, you know, what to do and, and all that. Um, I think that really comes across in the movie. I think that was one of the biggest parts for me in watching the the first section is how very much the film is showing the dehumanization. At, at least that's Kubrick's perspective, not that, from the film from the aspect from the perspective of the film. Kubrick really wants to show how the Marines and the army and the government are trying to break these people down to be units as opposed to people. Like from the first scene is, you know, them getting their heads shaved. All of their individuality is slowly being removed from them so that they can become cogs in the machine. And I mean, I'm sure that was very much the way they wanted it, especially in Vietnam where it was like, just get them out the door as quickly as we can. We need the bodies on the ground. Like, and Kubrick, I think that is one of the running themes through the film is and that's why it starts out, I think, in that uh, boot camp environment is because he wants to show how traumatizing and damaging it was for these men who go through Viet who went to Vietnam and how it became that way is because they break these men down into you know, to be the people they want them to be. Well, and but also to be the people that they need to be. So the military side of this and, and Gunny Hartman's side of this is that if he doesn't train them properly and teach them how to fire their rifle and follow orders, they are going to get killed because he knows that a vast majority of them are going to be infantry in the Vietnam War. 
right? And he actually lived that himself, the actor. And so that's the other half of it. From the civilian perspective, you're seeing the loss of humanity and the loss of individualism and uh, like the deli jelly donut scene that apparently that's one of the ones that they did 37 takes. So you can only imagine, but that kind of concept of like, I'm not punishing one person, I'm punishing all of you and you're going to learn to work as a team. Like that is a part of what is necessary to be able to put these humans later in inhumane conditions where you're under fire and still having these people remember how to follow orders and how to stay together and how to remember your principles of marksmanship and all that stuff that it's really, there's a system to it. How to Mm -hmm. survive. Right. And that's the, that's I think part of it that Kubrick doesn't do nearly as well at getting across. I think the movie is far more focused on the costs to these people. And that very well could be because this is a Vietnam movie and Vietnam was a, to say the least, a somewhat controversial war. Um, well, I also think it's, uh, to a certain extent, a, a a comment on the society that requires a military to require this of a person. So if it's, like, it, it is uh, an indictment of the military uh, to a certain extent, I feel, uh, or as far as the, the the film itself goes but in a like if you if you take like two steps back from that it's kind of uh it it really is just like an indictment of the society that like we're okay with needing that you know what i mean as a as a whole like this is some like Everybody knows that your country is going to have a military because that's the way it's always been. Uh, and the world has gotten, it doesn't always feel like it, but the world has gotten less violent and wars have gotten less deadly and conflicts. It, like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But this, yeah. To every, say. but, but nobody is ever saying like, well, maybe just, let's just not do that anymore. It's like taking little little incremental steps on it on its way there, but I don't think anybody has like no more war as an end goal in sight. The, I don't think people the, view it as a possibility. Right. Like that maybe the hippies did. Like the John Lennon war is over if you want it. But like uh we see how that worked out for the hippies. I think Kubrick is really – this is somewhat of his meditation on the costs of war and that if we are going to have war as a society, this is what we're actually doing to make those things happen and trying to open people's eyes to the individual costs of those policies. And like you said, Dan, like they need to do that in order for those people. Right. To survive. If you're going to have war, it's the idea that there are no survivors, right? To a certain extent. Yeah. Or certainly that there are going to be casualties along the way before you ever get to an actual war. And that's, and, and what happens to Leonard and his loss of humanity and uh, his, his psychosis like you do hear those stories. They do happen every once in a while. Recruits will die by suicide or get abused too much by a drill instructor. There was a, there was a, a guy who was air traffic, who was a drill instructor and actually ended up going to the, to prison 
because a couple of recruits died on his watch and there was a there was a court martial on how much he was responsible for it so it overall that's not what happens and they are good at doing their jobs and understand their limits but again i think this film shows you two sides of that cost one of them being leonard killing hartman and then killing himself and then uh moving on to the second act obviously you see the cost there so yeah i think that like we were talking about that this is a two-act structure movie i Mm -hmm. think the thing that keeps it from being like too many movies crammed together is that the second part of it would not work without that first part of it. It would feel very disjointed and lacking because he's setting up what these men went through to get here. And then he right. shows you what they're going to, which is, you know, Prostitute city. Yeah, yeah, hell. And that's an interesting part of it is how he leads with that. The It's, it's almost feel good. You know, like the, especially with the music he uses. Yeah, the music is all very like juxtapositional with like what's going on. Um, a really, really nice choices, and it's fucking every worst song to ever come out of the '60s is in those goddamn transitions. And the score for this, by the way, was done by Kubrick's daughter. Like all of the non-pop music songs that you hear, that was all done by her when she was like 19. Oh, and wow. A, I didn't realize she was 19. Yeah, she's That's really crazy. young in this. Like, maybe a little bit older, but she was pretty young when she was composing. And it's fantastic. Like, it's a fantastic score that really is a, like you said, a great juxtaposition between, like, those pop songs are meant to illustrate a point and then and be almost like a facetious, almost like a joke. Like mm-hmm. when they're riding into the city and they're playing that um, bird is the word. Oh, my God. And then the score is used to illustrate the drama and the pain and the pathos of the situation. Yeah. And to crank up on the emotion. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So after the uh, the killing scene, we move on to Vietnam and we get there um, at the yeah, this is January 1968. So this is right before the Tet holiday and then the Tet Offensive, which is uh, infamous. And usually, or, or I guess it had happened before that there was a ceasefire during Tet because uh, it's a huge holiday for the Vietnamese. And so, of course, the Americans were kind of caught off guard because the North Vietnamese leadership uh, launched an assault um, starting at Quezon with aerial bombardments, but they attacked 120 different targets across the country. So you can imagine um, the distraction and the chaos and everything that started to happen. Uh, Way City being what we see depicted in the film, the urban fighting. Um, And so, yeah, and and there's a transition there, right? You see Modine's character as this, combat correspondent journalist with with all his you know philosophical leanings and tendencies and the peace pin and 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 all those and some swagger Mm -hmm. lots of swagger what is that you've got written on your helmet born to kill sir you write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button what's that supposed to be some kind of sick joke no sir what is it supposed to mean i don't know sir you don't know very much do you no sir you know he's got his hair back I mean, he is the Joker. Mm-hmm. He's he's hitting on prostitutes and, you know, negotiating and 
His buddies getting cameras stolen as they're hanging outside a cafe or a bar or whatever the hell. But it's a very quick period of sort of like, oh, they're just shooting the shit and they're going back to the barracks and they're in the rear with the gear, as they say. And then you see one of these assaults on their base and you see the Tet Offensive unfolding. Um, and yeah, I mean, in the background politically and kind of what was going on with the Vietnam War at the time is that uh, General Westmoreland, who was in charge, was sort of trying to convince the government that there was light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I mean, this is a little bit earlier, about a year earlier in, in, or I'm sorry, not a year, but a few months earlier in November of 67. And so they were going into this idea that this was going to be a war of attrition and that if they just killed enough North Vietnamese and Viet Cong, eventually we were going to win the war that way. And so a body count became sort of the metric that they used to see if we were winning. And this is also the war where the media was involved the most directly. And this was the first war that really television brought it into your living room. And so, and then the last war that they let that happen mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. Well, because there was a period where it was used for propaganda and to give speeches and show how well we're doing and that we're winning and we're pushing back the communists, right? And then the Tet Offensive happened and they were, I mean, they, we had to escape the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and they were raising the uh, North Vietnamese flag over Saigon. And, and, and it was, yeah, I mean, that's where we started to lose the war. And tactically, they lost those battles. Eventually we regained control and regained ground. Yeah, I was going to say like the Tet Offensive was from... The understanding that I always had was that it wasn't actually a victory for North Vietnam. Well, it was a tactical loss, but a strategic win, because that is what was the beginning of the U.S. losing that war. Because nobody thought they were they were supposed to be able to do that to the United States Army and the, the military. Exactly. And as the images of of Americans being killed and bodies being dragged to the street and our embassy being taken over in Saigon. That is when people back home started to really uh, not support what was going on anymore and really start to question like, well, why are we here in the first place and look what's happened. It's just when you're winning a war and pushing back communists, quote unquote, it's one thing when you start to see young Americans getting their bodies being dragged through the street and that's on live television. Um, and Walter Cronkite's reporting on it. That's a whole different story. So that's where, um, things started to change. It's also the bullshit domino theory that like, we have to push back communism because X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, you, you, you didn't though. Like, yeah, the jingoism. I think is is what was inherent in all of the, a lot of those poor decision making is like well we have to do it because we have to do it. It was a tautology. And we were coming out of World War II and Korea where you know that was that was that had been the strategy and that that had been the philosophy and that had been the the idea of how we won things and Vietnam changed that. Um it's always interesting too to think that we call it the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese call it the American War. 
Because, of course, they're not going to call it the Vietnam War. And, you know, if you watch like Ken Burns, I remember watching Ken Burns' Vietnam, which I need to go back and watch again, which is such an incredible series. But I I love that they went back all the way to the 1850s and showed the French colonialism there and just how long. It kind of reminds me of Afghanistan. You know, it's a place where empires go to die. Yeah, empires (laughs) go to be involved in war forever. Yeah, the colonialism that has been experienced by the Vietnamese people for generation upon generation at this point is a whole nother aspect that Kubrick kind of touches on with this because they talk about the soldiers when they're being interviewed, talk about, you know, like these people don't appreciate what we're doing for them and they just laugh at us and all that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sound like a bunch of Karens, don't they? They do a little bit. (laughs) But if you have that understanding of it's like, well, you're not doing these people any favors. You are bringing war and, and pain and death to their country from their perspective, because that's all that they've known for generations is this colonialist environment where they're a product where them and their country are a product to be um, used and taken advantage of. And it makes it for me like watching that, it makes it even sadder because it's like, these men are under the impression that these people just don't appreciate, appreciate them. And it's like, well, they don't, but there's a reason for that. And nobody is winning here. Like you're being taken advantage of because of this war in the same way that these people are being taken advantage of. And it's just, it allows them another aspect of stripping away their humanity where they don't, they can't empathize with what these people are going through. And in the, you know, the final denouement with Joker and that sniper, like we do get to see, I do think that that final moment is at least a little hopeful because Joker retains his humanity enough to do something that you know is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. But he's still able to do that. Yeah, and that was part of Modine's influence because originally his character died. And I think in the book his character dies. But he convinced Kubrick that for his character, having to live with what had happened and having to live with killing that sniper and gaining the thousand-yard stare and all of that was a much worse fate for his psychology and for his character. And yes, especially since he totally shit the bed when he like snuck up on the sniper. His gun failed. His, his rifle jammed. Well, his gun failed. And then he's like, and he's like juggling the shit and like, and then the guy who he doesn't want to come with him is the guy who saves him. And then that guy turns out to be like, everybody in this movie is fucking gross to me. Like, (laughs) it's just like, there is, that's the other problem. That's a Kubrick movie for you. When I was young and when I, when I grew up, I, I still, you know, I'm just sitting here going like, I don't like you. 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 You're okay. You don't like you. Don't like you. Like, and that's that's it was kind like of the eight thing. ball. Is that his, eight ball? Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. one guy gets shot. Uh, he He's was the fine. first one to get shot. Yeah. Uh, I I liked him well enough, but like, Animal Mother's a piece of shit, and like every like all these like dude is like hanging out with the with the dead Vietnamese guy and I'm just like yeah the sergeant you're all fucking psychos you're all psychos 
And are they psychos because that's who they are, or are they psychos because that's what they've been made into? And that's a good question, because I think you get a mix of those kinds of people who are attracted to the military, especially in the infantry. And and people can tell the difference, but I think, um, I mean, even the door gunner, when you're watching the door gunner just firing indiscriminately into civilians who are just working in rice fields, like... That's a person who was likely going to be a sociopath in in real life, and whether he just found a place where like found a place where his skills or his, you know his his where uh, he can flourish exactly. So yeah, there's there's always a mix of that going on too. And Kubrick brings that up because he says that with when um, Joker meets Animal Mother. One of the guys describes him as like he's perfect soldier as long as he can get a job where someone's throwing grenades at him, he'll be set for the rest of his life. Right, right. There's a a joke. Uh, I'm for everybody's knowledge. I'm from Pittsburgh, and there is a joke uh, about uh, people from Pittsburgh always dress like they're worried they're going to pass somebody on the street, and that person is not going to be able to tell by looking at them that they're from Pittsburgh. Um, they they always have to have something Steelers on, you know, like, or like if they can have like a Steelers Jersey and like a pirate's baseball cap and like, I don't know, like a penguin's neck tattoo or like fucking whatever. But the, uh, I also kind of feel that way sometimes like you have your two types of Marines that I've known. Uh, cause I've, I've worked with and I had friends who are Marines not to sound glib, but like most Marines I know will have like a bumper sticker at least. They'll have like something that's like I was a Mar- like a little window decal or it's something. It's good for when you get pulled over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then you have, or like they might have a sweatshirt, you know, that they go jogging in. Uh, and then you have like the guy with like his entire back window of his truck is a Marine decal and he has three other Marine bumper stickers and his truck nuts have a little Marine tattoo on them. And then like he gets out of his truck (laughs) and he's got his Marine hat and his Marine, like Marine everything. And it's just like, you have your, it's his identity. You have your Marines and then you have your fucking Marines. Like you kind of see both in this, but there's a lot more fucking Marines in this one than there are just Marines. Like you have a really hard time seeing it, like imagining some of these folks like recycling back into into civilian life afterwards. Well, and and that's a very, I mean, that's a common thread with veterans, and there's there's a whole process to that. But transitioning back to civilian life, you often hear about these people who have a hard time finding a purpose again in civilian life because they don't they don't see the camaraderie and the way you can work together with people where you have all these things in common and you've had the same training. Often you see that, uh, in, in where you end up working. Like in my field, it's probably good 60% veterans. And from a lot of them are from the air force. Mostly I usually only run into a couple of Marines here and there. And oftentimes you can see the difference between, especially in that kind of close knit environment with high stakes and kind of high stress, um, the difference in how 
the former military people handle authority, for example, versus the civilians who haven't gone through that. And not that these things are, uh, of course, absolutes, but you see that a lot. Um, but yeah, a lot of these guys came back and I think I've heard that about World War II veterans, you know, that, um, for example, hunting became really popular right after World War II because you had all these guys coming back with weapons training and they didn't have anything to do with it. That, that, that's all this, those, that's a lot of the skills that they had, you know? And so going camping and going hunting was like the most similar thing that they did to being in the field and being in the shit essentially. Um, so yeah, that transition is something that everyone handles in a different way. I think, especially if you were in the infantry, which again, I wasn't, so I, I've only, you know, I went to Iraq, but I did, I was doing aviation there as well. And we got hit, you know, we had mortar hits and stuff like that, but they were usually far away and kind of random. And I never really personally felt like I was in danger. There's a, there's a great series called generation kill on HBO, which is a extremely accurate portrayal, especially of the banter between Marines. And these are force recon guys. These are special forces guys uh, in 2003 in the, in the beginning push in Iraq. And there's a scene in that where uh, the Lieutenant and a Rolling Stones reporter who wrote this book and he's embedded with them. They, they start getting attacked by an anti-aircraft gun, like starts shooting at their Humvee. So they jump out and hide behind the Humvee and, they are having a conversation and he goes, you know, most people think being in Iraq is like dangerous. Most civilians would think that, but he's like, but behind this Humvee, he's like, you feel, he's talking to the reporter. He says, you feel relatively safe right now. Right. And he's like, yeah, I feel pretty safe. You know, it's, it's just like a good example of how all of this is super relative and put into context. And that once you remove that element of danger and adrenaline and um, just, that type of challenge, some people can transition and do well and other people struggle with it for the rest of their lives and have, you know, PTSD or just have trouble relating to people. Those are really, really common issues and you can see why that happens. You know, I think part of uh, it, like I'm I, not, again, not a veteran, not a military guy, but I think that some of the things that might've made it easier for the World War II generation is that like coming home kind of everybody had this like you you know you see these like world war ii vets not as many of them as you used to they're they're dwindling in numbers but like you'd see these guys and like they could easily ask where were you in like what theater were you in and they would have an answer like it like when you came home you didn't necessarily you might have felt alienated from society but it was like you and like every other guy that you could throw a rock at was feeling like had gone through uh, very similar uh, sort of experiences. Whereas in Vietnam and then the wars that came afterwards, you had more and more people that weren't going or people who were burning their draft cards and things like that. And I think the other stark distinction there is that the Vietnam War and the way the public turned against it and and again the the impact that the media had in this it was the first time really compared to Korea where we're to all these other wars where veterans were coming home and I've read that the getting spit on incidents are actually hyperbole and like there aren't any recorded incidents of that happening but certainly coming home and getting called baby killers and having like hippie protesters 
really taking out their frustration with the government on the troops. That's a very, very, that's a thing that Vietnam veterans talk about a lot and can relate to. And that was so different from us, like coming back from Iraq, which is, you know, you can argue the merits of whether we should have been there and what, you know what I'm saying? It's not like there was that much support for that war, but the way we were treated was always, we'll protest the government and we're against this war, but we're not going to take it out of the troops. So I can't imagine going through the combat and the PTSD, watching your friends die, all that stuff, and then coming home, and if not physically, at least metaphorically getting spit on, you know, and really coming back and drinking yourself to death because you're not finding a place in the world anymore because you just don't belong. You don't, you're, you're not in a war anymore, but you feel like you don't belong at home either, you know, and you hear people talk about that. So yeah, there was a very interesting transition and, and a sad transition that happened during Vietnam. And I think that part of the reaction for folks who are coming back from Iraq or the Gulf war people not directing their frustrations, their impotent frustrations on the troops is a direct result because of how people were treated when they came back from Vietnam. Yes, there was a lesson learned there for sure. Yes. And I think the world was still really learning how, you know, because World War One was really the biggest change for when war was different when explosives and mortars and that kind of thing came into it modern weapons were introduced into into war right into the new century then it's when all of a sudden people were coming back with a lot more ptsd and war went from being something where there's you know there was a soldier class to being a temporary thing like you you were in for five years for the men for vietnam a lot of them were draftees or they were there for that one chunk of time and then they're gone and i think vietnam was such a huge transition point and i am i think that was probably also part of kubrick's making of this movie is because as much as these guys are generally pretty terrible people like at least for me I still feel for what they're going through, even Animal Mother. Like, I still feel for how utterly harsh their lives are. And I think Kubrick does a good job of making even the worst people be in some ways sympathetic. Like, Animal Mother is obviously a racist asshole, but yet he's the one who insists on going to go save eight ball like he's not i'm not gonna leave my men here to die right yeah he risks his life for that same for that same black marine that he was being making racial slurs towards just you know 10 minutes earlier in the film calling him the n-word to his face yeah and then like, just everybody standing laughs. right next, like nose to nose pretty much like could probably taste each other's breath and like i have no idea what kind of mindset you have to have to do that and and you see it earlier too in the boot camp sequence where yeah. ermy's giving the famous speech that the marine corps always gives um except when i went through the common parlance of it was there are light green marines and there's dark green marines but you're all green and you're all the same color and you're all going to be treated the same way which was harshly but fairly we're not going to discriminate and we're not going to accept any discrimination and you know there are definitely incidents and and things happen but i mean in boot camp like that was not a thing like we were definitely 100% equal and treated equally and running around all getting our asses handed to us so uh, but when ermy gives that speech in the film 
he goes through like a whole litany of racial slurs to describe how he doesn't discriminate against any of these different racial slurs. <laughs> it's interesting how like the message was the same, but the method was very different. But right, um, man, yeah, it's it's tough. To, there's so much to talk about, and there's so many wars to relate to. And again, it's our first episode, so it's even harder to stay on task because I think there's <laughs> concepts that we haven't really explored yet that we'll continue to explore with other films. Let's try and wrap this and kind of talk about the film as a whole and we before and the first we one do this mm-hmm. it, i and i and i'm sorry to jump in but uh there is something about the production of this movie that i was insanely curious about when i was watching it this time because it was of course the part that i didn't remember from the first time and that is the stuff in country in vietnam and how it was filmed because i'm sitting here watching it and i'm just which is all filmed about, in like, England, by the way. Yeah, it's crazy. How that's they did the that, thing. Right? That's like nuts. it's 1987, and I'm sitting here watching it and going like, "How did they do this? Because those are buildings, and they're on fire, and they're exploding shit out of them. Like, what is? I, I was like, I need to know how they did this, and it was filmed just outside London. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And the reason it's filmed outside London is the best part. It's because Kubrick didn't like to travel. Yeah, he filmed as much as he could in London. He does not like to, first of all, doesn't like to fly. And second of all, wanted to be, he he only wants to go home at the end of the night. Like he doesn't want to go on location anywhere and that's hysterical to me so they found this they they found this gas yard this gas works that was like decommissioned and because of the french colonialism that there was in vietnam there was this was built in a very similar time period so they're like some of these buildings looked exactly like the photos we were seeing mm-hmm. a lot of cement. you know but they were literally like his production design was insane because like his production designer was able to go through and just like, okay, so if I cut out this pillar and that pillar, I can make that fucking building fall over. (laughs) (laughs) Like it was like, yeah, he's like, I was able to do a production design with literally a wrecking ball. And they're like, okay, so I want you to punch a hole there and I want you to punch a hole there. And like, there was, everything was on fire. Like, they got complaints about, like, the fire from the set, like, started, like, drifting over the River Thames and just, like, people were getting pissed off about it. But, like, that's fucking Kubrick, man. You get what you get. And sometimes the fire was even to create smoke to cover up London in the distance because in certain shots you would have been able to see the city. But, man, how well do they pull off that illusion? I mean, you do feel like you're the whole time. And they they brought in all of those palm trees. Mm Mm-hmm. They had a they have a palm tree guy. Of course. And the they had to get a palm tree guy and they brought in all these palm trees, but they were all numbered, and every single one of them had to be approved by Stanley Kubrick. And he knew all the numbers, and he would like he'd come onto the set and be like, why did you put 34 there? That's supposed to be palm tree 87. And there were like 170 palm trees and he knew what all of them were supposed to look like and which one was supposed to go where, because the man was fucking crazy. Insane. This guy, I love it, but he was nuts. And I just had to make sure that we said that on air. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really incredible. I know I, in the background, I can hear the people that like worked on the research for us and look stuff up, like yelling at me because like, you didn't talk about this. You didn't talk about this. I'm like, yeah, but we can't do a three hour episode. Like there's just too many things to talk. Oh, about. we can. I think we've established we that could, we could totally but... do it. We could, but nobody we should not. will like us anymore. <laughs> exactly. But so what kind of war movie is this? I would say this is obviously it's this one's pretty easy. It's a Vietnam movie. Mm hmm. That's what we're talking about here. That's what the movie is saying. This is very specifically about the war in Vietnam. Right. And and I think it's both a Vietnam war film in the sense that obviously that's the setting and the war, but it's a Vietnam film in the sense that these are the common themes, what we've been talking about that came up during this particular war. So I think when you say it's a quote unquote Vietnam film, that's what we're talking about, right? It's this, of course, there's all the right, you know, loss of innocence and, um, dealing with uh, learning how to kill people, which is just something that soldiers and Marines go through in war films or in wars. Um, but the specifics of how Vietnam unfolded, how we ended up losing that war, the media's role in it makes that all very specific to Vietnam. So I think, yeah, there's no doubt that that's, that's the subgenre that we're dealing with here. Yes. And how was it constructed? Is this something that's more very based in the realities of what war is like, of what the conflict itself was about? Does it portray all of those things accurately? Or is this something that leans more towards the artistic side of things where we are seeing Kubrick's vision of Vietnam and how it affected the people involved in it and what kind of role it played in these men's lives? Well, I think the two acts answer those questions or they give different answers to that question. I think you have a lot of realism and almost documentary like realism to the first act, all the training of the Marines boot camp, the rifle range, the way the drone sector is acting, their interactions with each other. Um, so I think that leans heavily towards realism. And again, even um, private piles suicide and killing of Hartman is not unrealistic it didn't happen very often but again you can there are documented cases of it so um i would say for that part of the movie there's a lot of realism and it's and it's that accurate portrayal um but i think we lean a little more into the art in the second act of the film there is something a little bit surreal almost feeling i think about the patrol that they're taking through the city towards the end of the film you don't i don't know I, I don't get a sense that there's like a real objective i get the sense that it's a setting created just for the conflict and to have these interactions between the characters uh, at least certainly more than in the first half of the film i don't know how do you guys read that part i think it is I think both sides for me have a level of realism and a level of artistry. And I think that's generally Kubrick films for me are more artsy art interpretation style films than films based and grounded in reality. And I think the first half of the film starts very much in the real world. And then as it continues, it kind of takes off and goes into something that's more dreamlike almost nightmare like for the most part <laughs> but that i totally agree that 
like there isn't really seem to be an objective and it just kind of seems this endless experience and it doesn't like I, I you don't really see a way out for these men at the end at least not especially not for Joker from what he's done and what he's experienced and it feels by the end that you have entered a more liminal space than where you started I think that um it's it, I I have to agree that it's a it's a pretty strong mix where you have uh, well even in the first half it's very realistic but it's also you get mostly from Vincent D'Onofrio uh in the part of Leonard a much more because he was a stage actor predominantly before this um he'd done very very few movies nothing really worthy of note but his his portrayal of it and his Kubrick stare uh is a lot more theatrical than it is realistic um and he he's like it almost to the point where it throws me out of the movie where he's where the the scene in the bathroom where they where he like is sitting there with the gun and he turns and he looks more like the joker than joker does um you know he's just got that grin and he's like looking at you like from just under his eyebrows which is um what's generally referred to as the kubrick stare because mm-hmm. um, you see it in every the shining one of his movies every pretty much every one of his movies maybe not uh, spartacus but <laughs> maybe not strange love but uh, no i yeah. think dr strange love gives us that stare at least once throughout the film yeah but it's behind those glasses and it, that <laughs> well more that's funny. more of, that's more of a Peter Sellers movie than a Kubrick movie almost to a that's certain extent. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, it's, it's just such a heightened stylized version of reality that it's not that it's a bad performance and it's not that it's not realistic, but it's like Matthew Modine is so understated in everything that it's, it's really tough to, it's really tough for me to develop like an empathy with him. Uh, it was just really hard to get in there uh, because it was so, I, I felt like he was kept at arm's distance, even though he's the main character by, by the film. And when you compare it to something like platoon, where you get such a vivid picture of everybody and all of the small characters are very vividly painted but in this, even the main character, you have to do a lot of the legwork yourself as far as like filling in these gaps. It does not tell you and barely shows you much. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a good mix because even in the second half where you start to get a little bit more stylized, um, like the the setting is just so realistic. Uh, and maybe the, the way he's portraying things isn't 100% realistic, but I mean, actual burning buildings. Like, can you imagine how much this movie would suck if it were made today? Like shot for shot remake of full metal jacket, but with technology and budgeting paradigms that you would use today, um, it would blow. It would look like 300 and it's like, unless you had the right director doing it. And there's like maybe three people who could right. do it. There are a few make people, it work. for sure. 
you know, but somebody's putting CGI in at well, some yeah. point. Even not even 1917 had a lot of CGI. Mm-hmm. You know, like this was this was the 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 grand finale of practical effects in war films. I think is 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 this one. Um, so I think it probably feels more realistic now than it did when it came out, which is one of those. It's it's kind of weird to say, but there's a, uh, it, it might even just work better now coming to it for the first time or coming it to the first time in a long time because we've visually just been so used to everything looking a certain way and looking so digital and the effects we have now are great, um, but it's not as good as actually knocking a building on its side and lighting that shit on fire. Like that's going to look better on film. Well, and that's uh, something I totally I can see because when I did my my bits of research for this about the critical reception, like I said earlier, critically, when it was initially released, it was kind of a mixed bag. People weren't as open to what it had to offer. But now, if you look at that, it is generally considered one of like top 10 war movies by almost anyone. And so now we are much more open to what Kubrick was trying to say, because I think we have that distance from Vietnam. So there isn't, you know, I mean, vets are 50s, 60s now. So if not older, so there's 70s. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, they're not they're not in their 50s too young. Oh, gosh, I'm so yeah, bad. That's golf. Time. You're thinking Gulf War. Mm-hmm. They're uh, Vietnam vets are 70s and up for the most part. Oh, my God. Yeah, time keeps going. It's this crazy. I know. <laughs> I just try to. I try to remind myself. Nineteen eighty was forty years ago, right? <laughs> so I think now it's easier for us to engage with that because for us it isn't. Uh, it, it wasn't our reality, and it's much easier to appreciate it because it has those practical effects. So it does feel very realistic now, whereas it was probably much more like run-of-the-mill to have this style of practical effects then. So we've talked about how Kubrick did it, um, but what was his intent? Do you, what do you think the message is here, and, and has it changed over the years? I think it was made specifically to be an anti-war film. Maybe I touched on, like, touched on this a little bit when I asked you, like, how do you join the Marines after you watch this movie? But in my life, I've met an awful lot of people that like this movie is borderline porn for them. Like cannot get enough fucking full metal jacket, you know, like, Oh, badass. Fuck. Yeah. Like I feel like people who watch this movie multiple times tend to fall more into the animal mother camp than into the Joker camp. I don't think this is a movie that is popular with people who identify more with Leonard or with Joker. And that is baffling to me. But these are also the people that like, I don't know if you guys have ever known anybody who like, I didn't watch Taxi Driver for years until like last year. I never watched Taxi (laughs) Driver. It was always on my to-do list. But I I met too many people in like high school and college that were just like oddly idolized Travis Bickle. He was the original Rick Sanchez. 
And they like put me off on this movie so much that like when I watched it, my mind was blown by how good it was because I'm like, I know so many morons that are just like, yeah, Travis Bickle, like taxi driver, full metal jacket. And I'm just like, I don't know how you come away from full metal jacket being gung ho about a single goddamn thing. Like it is everything about this movie is screaming at me that this is the way we shouldn't be. These are things we shouldn't want. These are experiences that nobody should have to go through. Um, but I, so I think it's an anti-war film, but from my experience interacting with people, uh, I feel like it failed in its mission. Well, and that's, that's part of this. We talked about this was probably going to come up as a recurring theme. And I've seen this question asked, but is it possible to make an anti-war war film? Because inevitably you're just going to have viewers that glorify parts of it in one way or another, whether it looks cool to fly around in a helicopter or whether you like the idea of building yourself up in boot camp and, and remaking yourself. Um, it, it's difficult to, it's like you cannot make everyone see it the same way, no matter how much horror you put in it, no matter how much everybody dies at the end or um, whether you consider whether Joker was ever able to come back to real life and not be traumatized by the events that happened for the rest of his life. You know, it's like only certain people are going to see and get that message. You're always going to have a certain part of the crowd that just, is attracted to it. It's well, animal mother isn't a, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like I've known, I, I don't know too many Marines, but I'll tell you, I've known plenty of dudes like animal mother. And like, I think it's a, I think Kubrick's intentions with this were much more on criticizing the war, criticizing what, uh, what came out of it for the men who were there. And the people who were there, because this certainly does have some commentary on uh, the Vietnamese folks. Not much, but it does at least make a nod to the fact that this is traumatizing and damaging for them, especially by choosing to have the sniper be a young girl. And that makes you think about why is she doing this and all of that. So I think Kubrick really tries to make this a warning almost of like these are the costs of what we're doing. And I think it generally succeeds pretty well. I mean, I think Kubrick was a masterful director when it came to showing nuance. And I think you're always going to have people who just don't get it. I mean, there are people who don't get that fight club is not, not supporting what it's saying. <laughs> it's like the, the characters are bad in fight club. They you would know, be or, surprised to find out that it's taught in gay literature classes. Yeah, well, he is gay. Um, but uh, Or like Rick and Morty. Like There are people who think that Rick Sanchez is the hero of that show. And like I guess you can make that argument, and I would blame that on Dan Harmon. But more <laughs> like – and I love Rick and Morty, don't get me wrong. But Rick is not the hero of that show. Rick is an asshole, and the show is examining – his terrible behavior and trying to show you why it's wrong. But people just don't get that in the same way that full metal jacket is trying to show you why 
animal mother is wrong because i mean even even in his efforts to save his two comrades he gets the commander killed cowboy dies because he doesn't accept the commands he doesn't follow along with the rules and he tries to do what i mean i would say most people would think is the right thing try to save your buddies but it still has this tremendous cost and then it also ends up costing Joker a little bit more of his humanity and all of that. And I think Kubrick's intentions are really to make people face the difficult realities of both what Vietnam was and what military training can result in, like with um, Pyle's character and his development and his unfortunate demise at the halfway point. I think that was really what Kubrick was trying to show us. And I think he does a very good job but not for everyone i think there's because he chooses to do things in such a very particular artsy way a lot of that commentary is lost because in order to appreciate that you have to have some familiarity i think with kubrick and i think you have to be willing to see past the obvious and for a lot of folks that's not why they watch movies they don't they're not interested in looking at that they're interested in you know just being entertained and mm -hmm. i think for some people this movie can be very entertaining and that's a good thing and a bad thing and i think kubrick succeeded but not all the way yeah and there's a mix of it too like i'm very entertained in the first half of this film i i get the subtleties and i get the message as well as you go through the rest of the film and i'm not laughing certainly in in the murder suicide scene no. or in or in the soap beating scene uh, but there's still some great dark comedy in that first half which is inherent to marine corps boot camp again it's because of the realism so we haven't decided yet at this point in our show if we're going to rate the films that we watch, we talked about that today and we were kind of on the fence about it. So I don't know. We may pull the audience. We'll figure it out. But for the sake of this episode, if you guys had to give this film a rating, what would it be? I would go with probably a four out of five, I would say. And I'm a harsh harsh raider when it comes to these types of things this isn't my favorite kubrick movie but i do really like it and i do think it has a really valid place in cinema and i think its recognition as one of the best war movies ever is fully deserved because it does explore things with a lot of nuance and care and attention to detail that kubrick was known for man um i am oftentimes a fairly harsh reviewer myself but I would have to go ahead and uh, give it the five. Um, Interesting. I really, I, you know, and, and part of that is how impressed I was with the movie, having had such a dismal view of it, damn, over 20 years ago now, uh, is last time I saw that movie. It was a lot more complex than I remember it being, um, and a lot more interesting on the second viewing than I remember it being. And I liked the second half of it so much more. Uh, in spite of the fact that like, I hated everyone. Um, it was, you know, and I, and I, and I still don't like, I stopped liking Joker in the, in the soap beating scene. Um, that's, that's the moment when, when Joker lost me. Um, and, 
I'm I'm not convinced that he's going to be haunted by what he did in Vietnam anymore. I'm 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 really not because and and mostly because he joins in the singing afterwards. That's a really good point. I think I I think whatever part of his humanity was amputated in in shooting the sniper and in, in in delivering the coup de gras um is the part that would have trouble doing that. I think he finally I I think he finally became the killer that Hartman wanted him to be. Um interesting. So you don't view the singing and the lyrics of the song as a cynical song because I do. I I don't because like I don't it it matches up it matches up too much with the other things that disgusted me about the movie. Um like the the um the for lack of a better term the weekend at bernie's moment with the vietnamese corpse um like the you know what i mean it's it seems like something that i mean maybe they would do ironically but i don't think that like you know i read something where they were talking about like tapping into their childhood and the dynamics of like, these are still boys and their toys and like this, that, and the other thing. And like not letting go of the innocence. And I'm just like, Nope, this is, this is dark humor, uh, in the face of, in the face of the horrors that they're doing. Right. The unimaginable cruelty. It is dark humor, but I see a theme with Mickey mouse that comes up a couple of times in the film, three times actually, magic of the three right and it's when gunny hartman walks into the uh to the bathroom and he says what is this mickey mouse shit which is a common phrase in the military to kind of degrade someone who's being stupid and like not doing their job like what kind of mickey mouse bullshit is this there's i think there's a mickey mouse in the correspondence room in, yes. the, in the base and that's all in the context of how propagandistic that the stars and stripes is which stars and stripes for anybody that doesn't know is published for the troops that are abroad that's what the stars and stripes is for it's not to send back home so it's literally like a morale sort of newsletter for or newspaper for the deployed troops and then you get the mickey mouse song at the end which you know doing some research and reading there are some people who think this is a reference to McNamara and Johnson and the government who is leading this war and how Mickey Mouse bullshit the war is where it's like they're starting to lose it. They're not really understanding why they're there anymore. And they're just kind of like part of that dark humor that you get in those kinds of jobs where you're just faced with these um, very negative realities that are in your face. Yeah, I because uh, I've I read some of the same things and I just I just don't know if I buy it. Uh, what I uh, talking rule of threes though, I find it a lot more interesting from the Vietnamese perspective that we see exactly three women in this movie, and it's prostitute, prostitute, sniper. 
And I, because I, I really was, and I have no textual research to back this up at all, but like the, it, it struck me as odd that we would basically see the same thing, the same scene play out twice with the prostitution because you don't need that twice really that's true it and it seemed like oddly repetitive if it wasn't for the fact that the third the third one is the reveal that the sniper's a little girl and it's like the it, it and i don't know how intentional the commentary is but it 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 was definitely intentional to set up those two prostitutes structurally in the second half. And then the, the third time we see a woman, uh, she's this badass 12 year old that knows she's going to die and is holding off a, a platoon of Marines for a long time. Yeah. And kills many of them. I think that Kubrick includes the women as sex workers because I think he portrays them. I think a lot of the times they are standing in for the Vietnamese people because they are a lot of the times the victims here. And sex workers are almost always inherently a victim role, especially in film and especially in Kubrick's films. And I think he uses that juxtaposition of having the two prostitute or the two sex workers and then the sniper as a way of showing that these men really didn't feel they could trust anyone and being surprised and then having to deal with what Joker has to decide is am I gonna am I gonna kill this person am I gonna be merciful and horrible by murdering someone in cold blood but also she's going to die a horrible death if you don't and I think when you say that there's stand-ins for the Vietnamese people, that the way he's showing these two different roles for these three women um, is also showing you the very limited options that Vietnamese women during this war had. Like, what are you going to do? How are you going to survive and what are you going to do? And their options are not fun. It's either wait where you're at in a village for the NBA to come through or the Americans to come through. Nobody trusts you. There's obviously the Milai massacre, which we don't have time to get into, but you know, and, and it's like, who is going to rape you? Who is going to kill you? Who is going to abuse you? And so do you take, do you take control of something and, 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 and make a shitty choice because it's better to be proactive and at least be in control of your body and a way to make money or to go snipe and shoot Americans. Right. But like, these are not, fun options for a woman or for any person really right there's not it's not a it's a bad choice there's a, no good it's a, yeah it's a terrible no good choice options. i just this is more of a small bit of trivia before we close than anything but uh, there is another woman and it's kubrick's daughter she uh plays a photographer very very briefly uh, in the background uh, around the the mass grave during right? the mass grave and i i, I yeah. honestly i didn't even notice her so i only know this from having read it because it must have been that fast but she has a a short cameo in it. Yeah, I saw it in her IMDb when I was looking up the score. I don't think that has to do with the theme or anything that we just no. mentioned, but I just wanted to throw she, it in there. She appears in almost all of Kubrick's movies. She's in The Shining. She's in this. She's in Eyes Wide Shot. She's oh, okay. a regular appearer in his films. Oh, I never gave it a rating. I'm going to come in at a four as well. 
I think okay. that um, I I see what Kubrick's doing and it's very masterfully done. I love the first act. Again, my connection with the Marine Corps, but also just the way it's done, the dark humor. I really love it. Um, I, I still find, not that I could say what I would have done differently or better, because obviously I, I can't. Um, but I still find a few issues with pacing, um, I think, in the second half where like certain scenes linger a little bit too long. I felt that way in the sniper scene when she's dying, where I, I felt a little oh. bit like, OK, I get it. Like I was it, it like lingers and then it lingers more and then it lingers more. And I was like, OK, like I, I, I got what he was doing, but it just like, she's not praying in that scene, by the way. Right. She's she's saying it hurts. Mm-hmm. It hurts. Mm-hmm. And oh. then she goes in like I, I read that because obviously I don't speak Vietnamese, mm-hmm. but like apparently that's what she was saying was like, oh, God, it hurts so much. Which, Please. you know, was purposeful on Kubrick's part. Right. Right. And I guess complaining that to me, the pacing in that scene's a bit long. I, I'm sure Kubrick could say that was the point. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. I get it. I, I'm just saying in terms of like in terms of experiencing the viewing of the film. You know, I, I'll, I'll dig it just a little bit because for me, the pacing isn't as good in the second half. There is one thing, and and it, it takes a special kind of dickhead to watch a Kubrick movie and be like, nah, I could have done that better. But like, <laughs> there's one thing. But then what are you going to tell us, Liam? What, here's what I'm going to tell you is uh, I am that dickhead. Are you about to call me an asshole? Uh, so <laughs> this, the... The scene where Cowboy gets shot. I really didn't need the perspective from the sniper. Seeing him through the wall. I think that would have been much better because we've already seen something from the sniper's window and we've already seen which window is the sniper's. Right. And so... I was already like, again, I've seen this, but I don't remember this part at all, but the, like, he gets up and he starts to like walk away and he's standing there and I'm just like, I I was about to cry bullshit because I'm like, dude, you're about to get like, (laughs) I can see the sniper window. The sniper can see me for sure. Like. And if if that had just been like, don't give me that cut to the to inside the sniper window where you see him, just fucking shoot him from there. That would have been perfect, but that's not what we got. And there you have it, folks. This is how Liam would uh, do a better job than Stanley. This Kubrick. is why that's Liam would be exactly. a better director than Cooper. <laughs> uh, Precisely. This is like heroin to me. Just keep on just right in the veins, man. Just give it. This is. This is like my birthday. All right. Well, we're running a little long, so I think we should close with that. But uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And again, this is a work in progress. So we'll kind of see where the themes take us and and uh, how exactly how we want to rate these films and discuss them. But um, thanks for coming along on the ride with us. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Have Did we come to a consensus on what we're doing next? Next uh, next episode is going to be, uh, is it 2020 is the outpost? Is it 2019? Oh, I didn't realize it was that recent. It's, it's very super, recent. No, yeah. it is 2020. 
which uh, I yeah I'm excited to talk about. Yeah, that me one. too. I haven't seen it, so I'm I'm stoked to see that. And we're gonna probably start this show with a twice a month release, so you can expect this uh, every other Friday. Our release date. If you're listening to this on release date, this is Friday the twelfth of February. So our next one will be February twenty sixth. There you go. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody's heard about the bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the bird, bird, bird. The bird is a winner when the bird, bird, bird. When